Can I say this? The podcast by the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. I am going to make a start. Um, and I'd like to start by uh, welcome everyone, uh, welcoming everyone to another uh, event by the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. Um, some of you won't, unfortunately, be watching live. Uh, we do apologize for this, but uh, Zoom webinars have a uh, limit of attendees. Um, so we're limited in, in that matter, uh, and we do apologize. Um, and then proceeds to welcoming Richard Dawkins. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation, invitation for this event. Uh, it's a great, great honor to have you. Uh, I'm now going to introduce Richard Dawkins. I don't think it's really necessary to do it unless you were born yesterday or have been in a coma in the last 45 years, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, Richard Dawkins is the most influential evolutionary biologist and atheist of our age, um, being very famous for having proposed the selfish gene theory uh, with the gene as the unit of selection. Uh, I would say that this is the most wonderfully built theory in biology since Darwin's uh, theory of evolution. Uh, and I would go as far as to say that it's practically a work of art uh, at the level of the Mona Lisa or the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It's really a great inspiration for me and a work of genius, really. Uh, and that theory, because of how great it is, ended up having uh, tremendous repercussions in a very good sense in evolutionary biology and biology in general. Um, and besides, obviously, um, having proposed the selfish gene theory, um, Richard Dawkins is widely claim, acclaimed for his books. Besides the selfish gene, he's written several books about um, uh, genetics and biology, such, such as the extended phenotype, which, if I may say so, uh, is another work of genius, um, and also some books around religion, most notably The God's Delusion. Uh, I've said quite a bit about Richard Dawkins, but there's so much more to be said. I could be here um, all night long talking and there would still be things to be said uh, about Richard Dawkins. So I'm going to jump straight into the next part, uh, which is just a bit of admin. So if you're watching this on Zoom, you can ask questions through the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Um, for those who are watching on YouTube, you, you can still ask questions because we'll be monitoring the live stream there. Uh, we can't guarantee that your question will be asked, but we're going to do our best um, to ask your question. And finally, I will be joined by Kat, uh, who is also going to be reading out the questions. And having done that, I'll jump straight in. Um, uh, Richard Dawkins, we have a question from the audience. Um, and this person asks, if you could only, if a person could only read one of your books, which one would you recommend and why? That's a very difficult question. Thank you very much for your welcome. I'm obviously, uh, free speech is very dear to my heart. And so I'm very pleased to be able to talk to the Free Speech Society of Dundee. Um, which of my books would I, well, one of the ones that I'm particularly pleased with is Climbing Mount Improbable, especially it's not, so widely known as the others. It hasn't sold so well as the others, but I think it's one of my favorites. The extended phenotype you mentioned, uh, and um, that's aimed mostly at a professional audience. 
Um, but I'm very proud of that book. I think perhaps one of those two. Oops, sorry, a uh, couple of technical issues. Uh, that's that's very good. That's uh, that's a good answer. Uh, I would. Uh, the next question has is slightly related to this, but in a, a different perspective. Um, you have written several books about religion, uh, targeting religion and religious beliefs. Uh, and those books have been received with criticism from religious communi communities all around the world. So looking back at those books and looking back at the criticisms you've received, are there any books which you regret, uh, not books specifically, but anything in your books that, that you, you've regretted writing? No, there aren't. Uh, I've written two books on religion, The God Delusion and Outgrowing God. Uh, the God Delusion quite a while ago now, Outgrowing God just last year. Um, no, I don't regret anything actually, um, and uh, certainly not the religious books. Of course, you're right that they've received criticism, as you would expect, there's no question about that. Um, but um, on the whole, they've been very well received. The God Delusion uh, is sold extremely well, still selling extremely well actually, um, not only in English, but in foreign languages, uh, including Arabic, uh, a, a very large number of um, downloads of a PDF, a free PDF in Arabic. I think uh, something like 13 million downloads of the God Delusion in Arabic, which I'm especially pleased with. <laughs> Hi, so I'm the other host, Kat, and Hello. I'm also going to be taking a few turns to ask a few questions. And we just sort of briefly touched upon your book, The God Delusion. And one of the more interesting questions that we received was, you are very critical of religions and advocate that we should do our best to deconvert theists. And this is one of the main arguments that is presented in The God Delusion. But how do you differentiate between cults and religions? And do you think cults are worse than religions? I'm not sure I would differentiate, really. Don't you think you could say that cults are just more recent and uh, Christianity started out as a cult? And then because it's had 2000 years to mature and develop and perfect its act, uh, we no longer think of it as a cult, but uh, and Mormonism is a kind of intermediate case. Mormonism started in the early 19th century and has been going sort of long enough to become a kind of respectable religion now with even more presidential candidates and lots of rather prosperous people being members of the Mormon religion. So that's intermediate. And then very recent ones, we still call cults, but I think it really is a matter of age probably. That's that's just a, a wonderful a wonderful response. I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, we have another question here, uh, and the question asks: I can't thank you enough for the profound intellectual awakening that occurred when I first read the extended phenotype after watching growing up in the universe as a kid. The question I have would be: Which scientist or thinker, aside um, aside from Darwin and yourself? would you recommend a young scientist to be exposed to and why? 
and this person's personal choice would be Bill Hamilton. Yes, well, Bill Hamilton certainly would be one of mine. Um, he, his death was very tragic, uh, oh, 20 years ago now. Um, and um, I miss him a lot. He was a dear friend and colleague. Uh, his books are mostly, um, well, entirely are um, collections of his papers woven, his scientific papers woven together by an interesting autobiographical thread. It's an, a unique form of autobiography where he reprinted his scientific papers, but strung them together with autobiographical anecdotes uh, leading from each paper to the next one. And it's there's three volumes of it and very worthwhile reading. Um, Maynard Smith is another dear friend and colleague who died uh, a little bit more recently. John Maynard Smith, written lots of books. Um, or rather outside my own part of biology, Peter Medawar, a great immunologist, Nobel Prize winning immunologist, um, a great essayist, a wonderful stylist. I, I, in a way, feel I like to think that I model my style on him in a, in a sense. Um, he's, he wrote beautiful, beautiful essays, and, and I, would, I would like to aspire to, to, to be, to, to follow him in some respects. Um, you mentioned Darwin, of course. Um, I think yeah, that, that, that'll do for, for a start. If I think of any more, I'll mention them later. So I've got another question for you that's sort of still focused on the topic of biology. And this person says, in my favourite of your books, The Greatest Show on Earth, you mention surprising facts like a horse's hoof is homologous to the fingernail of our middle finger. What is your personal most surprising facts about evolution and what still surprises you when you look into evolution? Well, that's a pretty good one. Um, well, one very surprising fact, which surprised me very much when I first learned it, oh, quite a while ago now, is that hippopotamuses are cloven-hoofed animals. They don't, they, sorry, whales are cloven-hoofed animals, being closely related to hippopotamuses. Um, of course, whales don't have hooves at all, let alone cloven ones, but they spring right in the middle of the cloven-hoofed animals. They're close to hippopotamuses. And so that, I think, is an astonishing thing which we learn from molecular genetics. And one of the things about molecular genetics is that it can tell you about relationships of animals which you would never possibly have, get, have guessed uh, from pure anatomy. And there are some kind of hints from the anatomy that whales are related to hippos. And, and that's been suspected for a long time, since the 19th century, actually. But Nobody ever thought that whales sprang from right in the middle of the cloven-hoofed animals. So that hippos are actually closer to whales than hippos are to pigs. I find that a, a most astounding fact. That, that is indeed very, very interesting. And thank you very much for that fact. It's, it, it's unbelievable. Uh, there is someone who asks, um, in complete honesty, I'm neither a member of the Free Speech Society nor 
do I believe in the assumption that free speech is under attack? With that stated, I hope it's in the spirit of the free speech society to still ask this question. It is, that's exactly why we exist, to be accepting of all questions and opinions. And the question is, your books in many ways have been about helping escape indoctrinating and harmful religious views. The God Delusion, and especially your 9-11 response article, Misguided Missiles, left me with, in polite terms, mixed feelings, but in fairness, a belief that you have a genuine good faith, a belief that religion is intrinsically harmful and that you wish to protect believers from harm. Um, contrasting the harm you perceive in religion with growing Islamophobia and hate crime rates in post-Brexit UK, have your views or rhetoric changed and how do you view your previous works with this modern context in mind? I'm not very fond of the word Islamophobia. I think it's greatly overused. Uh, I do not regard myself as Islamophobic. I do regard myself as phobic against female genital mutilation, phobic against throwing gay men off high buildings, phobic against killing people because they are apostates. I do not respect a religion which is, feels so insecure that the only way it can keep its adherence is by threatening to kill them if they leave. So I'm phobic against all those things. What I'm not phobic against is individual Muslims uh, who I regard as victims of Islam uh, more than anything else. I have great sympathy with them being brought up with this uh, belief from childhood onwards and finding it, well, I was going to say difficult to leave, impossible to leave if you value your life. So on that note on religion, we've actually had an interesting question coming on the chat, which does work quite well as a follow-up question. So this person has said, if you look at the current hate crime bill, part of the drive behind this law is said to be against bigotry. Increasingly, some people think of faith and attitudes of religious people as bigotry. Given your critique of religion, do you now see the need to defend the freedom of thought and speech of religious groups? Do you think that your work might have contributed to an intolerance of people's faith at all? I would hope not. Um, I uh, am passionately interested in truth. And so I like to... Um, uh, argue with religious people about such things as the origin of the universe, uh, life, the origin of life, the evolution of life, and things like that. Um, is religion harmful? Some religions certainly are. Some aspects of religion certainly harmful. Um, I think that the most harmful aspect of it is probably blind faith. The doctrine which is drilled into young people in religious education in various religions, that faith is a virtue. In Christianity, we see this in the story of Doubting Thomas, where Thomas was the only one of the 12 disciples who expressed any kind of uh, desire for evidence that Jesus had risen. And Jesus uh, criticized him for not having enough faith. The others, believe without needing evidence, whereas Thomas needed evidence. Now that is fundamentally anti-scientific. I've jokingly said that 
St. Thomas should be the patron saint of scientists. He doubted, he, 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 he had skepticism, he wanted, he wanted evidence. I think that blind faith, the, the doctrine that, you, that it's a virtue to believe things in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence, you're particularly virtuous if you believe things given there's no evidence at all. The, the, the less evidence there is, the more virtuous you, you are if you believe it. Now that is a pernicious doctrine not just because it's anti-scientific, but because it brooks no reply. Somebody can say, it is my faith that uh, gay people are evil, something like that. It's my faith that, um, that uh, apostates need to be killed. It's my faith that um, the right thing to do is to plant a bomb somewhere and kill uh, infidels. Now, if they, if they do not base their beliefs on evidence, then there's no way you can persuade them out of that. Faith is the kind of shield against all, all reason, all argument. So I think that is a very, very deep, pernicious evil, blind faith. Faith is an evil and just as much of an evil is teaching children that there's something virtuous about having faith without evidence. That's, that's an extraordinary reply. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much. We have a question that's somewhat related to faith. Uh, and this person asks, uh, one of the reasons why you argue that non-theists should do their best to deconvert theists is that it is not up to us to assume that people are naive and need this imaginary gods in order to feel better. With this same position in mind, do you see any value in alternative medicine in the sense that medical doctors cannot, for ethical, ethical reasons, lie to the patients, but sometimes the placebo effect, i.e. alternative medicine, may be able to treat the patient? That's a very interesting question. It's nothing to do with any of my books, but never mind about that. Um, uh, Let's take homeopathy as the most extreme example of alternative medicine. Um, the other, other kinds of alternative medicine like um, osteopathy uh, and um, uh, things like that might have something in them, but homeopathy cannot have anything in, in, in it because the, the dosages, uh, homeopaths believe that the more dilute the active ingredient is, the more effective it is. And um, what that means is that if you do a controlled experiment comparing the dose with a placebo control, there is no difference between them. So homeopathy cannot work, it must be false. Um, now the question asks, is there nevertheless some virtue in it because of the placebo effect? Because orthodox doctors, uh, proper doctors, so to speak, are not allowed to um, prescribe placebos. There was a time when they did. There was a time when uh, good old-fashioned GPs um, would, uh, when they got a sort of hypochondriac, they would prescribe pills that had nothing in them, and the patient would get better, and um, the pills would have some virtue by virtue of the placebo effect. Well, now, Nowadays, doctors aren't allowed to do that. Placebos are against medical ethics. And therefore, the only doctors, the only medical practitioners, the only practitioners, I should say, who are allowed 
to prescribe placebos are quacks, homeopaths or, or, or other, other well, types of quack. And so they might have some virtue because, um, because the placebo effect undoubtedly does work. Another point is that real doctors are busy. They have a lot of patients to see and they cannot afford to waste too much time talking to any individual patient. So you get 10 minutes and then you're out. Um, whereas homeopaths have got plenty of time. And so uh, there's a virtue again in a medical practitioner, a kind, gentle face, a, a kind voice. It, it has a calming effect, a soothing effect. And so, I mean, I certainly found going to an ordinary doctor that uh, simply looking at a pair of intelligent eyes over a stethoscope um, makes me feel better even if, I, even if I'm not actually given any medicine. And so perhaps <clears throat> homeopathic doctors can have a beneficial effect in that kind of way as well. But what they certainly cannot have is any true serious medical benefits. <clears throat> Okay, so we had another question that's actually coming on the live Q&A um, on the actual Zoom webinar. So just a wee reminder to everyone watching that you can submit your Q&A questions and we will see them. Um, I've got somebody here who's brought the topic back to your very well-known and loved book, The God Delusion, and they say, in The God Delusion, you quoted Wal Ralph Waldo Emerson that, the religion of one age is entertainment of the next. Do you think the figures of religion in the religious text right now will turn to popular culture ones like past religions have, for example, the Nordic and the Greek religions? Yes, I do. Um, <clears throat> I, I imagine if we looked uh, a few hundred years ahead, of, ahead uh, Christianity and Islam and Judaism will become just like the worship of Thor and Odin and Zeus and Apollo. Yes, I agree with that. <clears throat> um, I uh, I must apologize for it. the previous question wasn't as strictly about your books, but I thought it was very interesting. So I thought I'd ask it. So, mm -hmm. but apologies. Um, we do have a question uh, because you've recent, uh, recently written an article for The Spectator in which you reveal very excitingly for me um, at least, that you're writing three new books, one of them being a fiction, uh, which you have provisionally called The Genetic Book of the Dead. After all these years of writing strictly non-fiction, what caused you to venture into the world of fiction? <laughs> I think I was rather rash, perhaps, in, in admitting that. Um, I, I have started writing a, a work of fiction, um, and I've got about um, six chapters of it written. Um, I think the, the title of the book that I gave, which is The Genetic Book of the Dead, actually, I want to use that for a nonfiction book. So I was rather sorry, I, I, I betrayed that, that title. Um, it's something I've long, it's a, that, that's a title I've long wanted to use for a book for, for, for a long time. And um, I'm just starting to write that nonfiction book called The Genetic Book of the Dead. Um, the fiction book, <coughs> excuse me, the fiction book that I, um, have started to write as well, uh, is about a scientist who uh, manages to 
reconstruct an australopithecine or perhaps a homo erectus anyway a, an extinct hominid um and it's all about the it will be all about the um the ethical the political the the, the religious a reaction to bringing to life an, an extinct human excuse me um I, I have actually a, a follow quest follow up question from that because you mentioned that you've been you've had this uh, this title for a book in your mind for a long time and I'm just wondering has it ever happened to you uh, you came up with a brilliant title and you thought well I'll have to write a book about it yes that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what happened with the genetic book of the dead <clears throat> Okay, so I've got another question that's coming through the Q&A. And um, this person is asking, in your books, you discuss that there was only one event in the history of the Earth that created life. If so, what does this say about the likelihood of finding life on other planets? A bit of a different question, but I thought it was quite an interesting one nevertheless. It's a very interesting question. Um, <clears throat> well, as long as we don't know Uh, how many um, possibilities, how, how much other life there is in the universe. Uh, it's entirely um, open question how improbable the origin of life on this planet was. So if hypothetically, uh, we are the only life form in the universe, which some people do believe, then because the number of opportunities for life to have arisen, the number of planets available is so gigantic, so mind-boggling gigantic. That would have to mean, if you believe that we're unique, if you, if you believe that we're completely alone, that would have to mean that the origin of life on this planet was utterly, ridiculously, absurdly, extremely improbable. So improbable that we're probably wasting our time trying to work out how it happened. Now, I don't believe that for a moment. I suspect that the origin of life on this planet was not that improbable an event, which is the same as saying that I believe there must be quite a lot of life elsewhere in the universe. It's not that improbable, therefore it must have happened many times. Um, that doesn't mean we're likely to ever find it because by the same token, because there are so many planets available, so many stars with planets available, we now know that. Um, the forms of life that there are in the universe may be so spaced out, even if there are billions of them, they could still be so spaced out that no life form ever meets any other. So I do not expect we shall be visited by little green men anytime soon, <clears throat> if ever. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> there's a question here uh, from uh, someone who, you know, Most of the questions have been from atheists, I assume. And here's someone that goes the, the opposite way. Um, they ask, in the God delusion, an argument against the existence of one God is that the God people believe in is an accident of geography. If you were born in Vi uh, Viking times, you would believe in Odin, Thor, etc. If you were born in present-day India, you'd believe in Vishnu. If you were born in ancient Greece, you'd believe in Zeus and so on. My question is, if it were apparent, apparent all throughout the history of men, regardless of race, culture, era, et cetera, that, for example, the Christian God was the, own, uh, uh, the one and only God believed and worshipped 
by men. Uh, would this in any way, however slightly, make uh, you, Richard Dawkins, reconsider the possibility of um, the existence of this god? If not, why not? Um, you know, imagine if the Chinese, Indians, Arabs, Russians, Africans, Europeans, all throughout the millennials, all came to the same conclusion through religious experience, messages from God and whatnot, that it is the Father, Son and Holy Spirit that is the one and only God. What would you, uh, your reaction to this be? Well, if they independently, without communicating with each other, came up with the idea of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that would be pretty impressive. Um, if it spread, however, uh, that wouldn't be that impressive. I mean, it would just be a matter of, of um, cultural um, um, influence. Uh, just as Islam was spread by military invasion, um, if, if Christianity had been spread by military invasion to all the different parts of the world, then it would not be particularly impressive. Um, if, uh, the, if the idea of crucifixion and resurrection and virgin birth and all those things arose completely independently, without influence, that would be mildly impressive. It wouldn't be that impressive, it would be mildly impressive. So um, I've got another question about another one of your books. Um, this time it's coming through the chat, but I think it's a very interesting one. And this person is asking, in the, de in the Devil's Chaplain, you included a letter to your then 10 year old daughter. That was around 20 years ago. Would you change anything if you were to write it today in 2021? No, I don't think I would. Um, <clears throat> I, um, uh, I like the idea of writing for children and I, I've written um, another book, The Magic of Reality for Children, um, which um, sort of in a way is aimed at this, in the same kind of level with that letter to my daughter. Um, the magic of reality is about science, about different aspects of science, physics and biology. Um, and um, I try to adopt the same tone in that book as I did in that letter to her. Uh, but I, no, I, I wouldn't change it now if I were writing again for another 10 year old child. Uh, there's a question here about the God delusion. Uh, and specifically about chapter six. And it is quite specific. So I do understand if you can't recall exactly what uh, the, this person is mentioning. Uh, but they ask, I've always found the argument of morality a difficult, difficult top, topic to argue, I assume from the point of view of an atheist. Um, uh, I found that misfiring explanation uh, of human nature very useful uh, and clear also. But I am somewhat confused about the extract concerning Kant's attempts to base morality on duty for duty's sake rather than for God's, and the example of lying given to demonstrate it. Please, could you elaborate on this? Thank you. I couldn't quite hear the key. It wasn't really clear what you were saying there. Um, I'm talking about morality. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's from your chap the chapter six from The God Delusion. Uh, and this person uh, mentions uh, Kant's argument uh, to, oh, Kant, to, base, right. okay. yes, to base morality on duty for duty's sake rather than for God's. And the, this person asks what exactly you mean by this and the example of lying that you gave. Yes, um, I think the point here is that um, uh, um, the morality that Kant 
advocates is one that says, don't do anything such that you, you would not wish everybody to, to do it. So lying, for example, um, he would say, um, if everybody lied, then uh, there'd be no such thing as truth. And so lying is a kind of self-defeating um, piece, of, piece of conduct. So I think that, that's, the, that's the sort of argument that he was, that he was making. Um, I think a rather similar one is the, is the argument or is the suggestion of the philosopher John Rawls, more, more recent philosopher, <clears throat> the so-called um, veil of ignorance. You, you, you imagine that, that you are um, uh, unable to tell whether you are at the top of the heap or the bottom of the heap in society. And, therefore, and we want to con you should want to construct a morality such that you would be equally happy um, with that morality, whether you're at the bottom of the heap or the top of the, of the, of the heap, whether you're ri rich or poor, um, uh, dominant or subordinate, that kind of thing. And th that again is, is, is not a morality based on religion. That's, that's, that's a morality ba based on, um, uh, well, duty, yes. So I've got another of our Q&A questions. And this attendee is asking, in the selfish gene and the extended phenotype, you argued very strongly for gene level selection and against group selection. But in more recent years, group selection seems to have been making a comeback. So have you subsequently changed your mind at all? No, I haven't. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> the reason is that the comeback is a different kind of group. I'm so sorry. Hang on, I'll just mute my mic. Oh, no worries at all. Um, there is always some kind of issue in these online events, it's fine. The group selection which has made a comeback is a very different kind of group selection. It's not the group selection which I was opposing in the selfish gene and the extended phenotype, which is about groups that have a greater fitness, groups that survive better, groups that reproduce better and so on. Uh, the sort of neo-group selection is actually a, a disguised form of kin selection. It only works if the groups we're talking about are kin groups. And of course, kin selection is something highly respectable and something that I go into a great, in, a great deal in the selfish gene. So I think it's a simple, um, a semantic thing that people who are now talking about group selection as a new form of group selection are not really talking about group selection in the same sense as I was attacking in the selfish gene. Uh, we coincidentally have a question about the selfish gene. And this person says, dear Professor Dawkins, in the selfish gene, there appears to be a contradictory set of premises set out within your thesis. Uh, you begin by outlining your belief that genes created us, body and mind, that we are their survival machines, in a sense, sophisticated robots uh, built by the genes to perpetuate themselves. However, later you state, we have the power to defy the selfish genes of our birth. Um, although we are built as gene machines, we have the power to turn against our creators. We alone on earth can rebel against the tyranny of the selfish <laughs> replicators. Where does this power to rebel come from? And how do you reconcile the deterministic framework that you set out at the beginning of your thesis with this apparent free will that you refer to later? We don't have to call it free will in the philosophical sense. 
what is clear is that we do rebel against it every time we use contraception. For example, um, contraception is fundamentally anti-evolutionary, anti-selfish genes. Um, we can, uh, because we have brains that have evolved to, so to speak, outgrow our evolutionary heritage, we, uh, we have the freedom, we evidently do have the freedom, whether you call it free will or not, we evidently do have the freedom to defy our selfish genes by using contraception. Um, if uh, natural selection was given another few thousand years in the presence of contraceptives, uh, it might turn out, it might breed a race of humans in which the donning of a condom would be an exceptionally painful act because natural selection would be penalizing those individuals who uh, enjoy sex um, with the contraceptive, that kind of thing. Um, so there's absolutely no doubt that we do defy our selfish genes when we use contraception and when we uh, waste our time from a genetic point of view, doing all sorts of things like writing books and doing webinars and things like that, when we could be getting on with the business of reproducing. So it's absolutely clear that we do have the power to rebel against our selfish genes. At the same time, there's no doubt that uh, natural selection does favor genetic reproduction. And so that if you think there's a contradiction, you must be wrong because, because we, we, we embody that, con that contradiction all the time. So one of our um, attendees is going back to the greatest show on earth. And they're asking, in The Greatest Show on Earth, you recount your interview with Wendy Wright, which looked quite exasperating. The proponents of compelled or controlled speech and identity politics seems to behave and argue similarly to creationists. For example, tolerance to authoritarianism, a looser standard of evidence and group identity. As an experienced Darwin's insert dog breed here. What are your thoughts on strategies on how to fight back? Fight back against what? Exactly. <laughs> um, I believe they're wanting to understand your thoughts on fighting back on things such as compelled or controlled speech, identity politics and other situations which are similar to creationists. Yes. Um, so, but because you're the Free Speech Society, this is rather relevant, isn't it? Because yes. um, <laughs> free speech is rather threatened by identity politics. And um, I think there, there is a, a real tendency for some people to be afraid to um, come out and express uh, what they feel about, uh, shall we say, sex differences, for example. Um, you know, it, it's an open question scientifically, the extent to which there are sex differences in male and female brains, um, uh, uh, male and female interests, that kind of thing. And there is a certain uh, politically inspired orthodoxy, which uh, makes people afraid to speak their mind, um, even to be open-minded enough to say, let's look at the evidence. And I think that, that that is a form of a rather tyrannical, dictatorial thought police, you could almost call it using George Orwell's phrase. I think we are in a 
rather bad place at the moment with respect to uh, kind of policing of speech and even of thought, uh, which comes from the political left. Uh, rather surprisingly, you expect that kind of, of tyrannical um, policing to come from the right, but I think it's coming from both ends now. And, and I, I, I'm worried about it. Um, I, it does actually, it, it can require a certain amount of courage to stand up and um, say, let's dispassionately look at the evidence. You may get a response that says, don't look at the evidence. You, you know it's wrong, that kind of thing. So yes, I'm worried about that. Um, we have someone that asks a question that brings us back to uh, your books. They ask, in outgrowing gods and the God delusion, you lay out very good arguments with numerous examples for why it is wrong and hypocritical to claim our morals are derived from biblical scripture. However, I keep running into people who maintain that they do get their moral from scripture. Despite my laying out clear arguments with evidence, um, how would you approach such individuals whom are so locked in their mindset? I rather hope they don't get their morals from scripture. Um, and if they do, they must be picking and choosing which scriptures they get their morals from. Um, I would guess probably the Sermon on the Mount, that's about it. Um, with all the rest of scripture, the morals that they will be getting will be pretty appalling. Uh, especially from the Old Testament, of course. And the Old Testament is, morally speaking, literally disgusting. Um, the New Testament is not entirely bad. Um, as I said, the Sermon on the Mount is good. Some of Je Jesus' sayings are uh, moral by our standards today. But when we say our standards today, we're using today's standards, obviously. And um, since we have a criterion a, mo a modern moral criterion for deciding which bits of the Bible we think are moral and which are not, which bits of the Bible, like the Sermon on the Mount, we decide are moral. We have a modern criterion for, for deciding that. And we have a modern criterion for deciding that, for example, oh, Abraham's near sacrificing of Isaac is immoral. And, and just about all the rest of the Old Testament is, is immoral. We are using a modern criterion to make that decision. So why bother with the Bible at all? We've got the modern criterion. We use the modern criterion for deciding which book, books of the Bible, which verses of the Bible we follow as being moral, which we reject as not being moral. So let's cut out the middleman and just uh, use our modern moral philosophy uh, to decide what we decide, what we think is, is moral. Don't get your morals from scripture. If you do that, you'll be, you'll be a very bad person. So another one of our attendees has asked, in the selfish gene, you claim that, at least for non-human animals, that homosexual behavior would be strongly selected against. Yet we now know that many animals engage in homosexual behavior. How would you explain this? And how do humans fit into this question? Yes, there's a book, I, I presume this is a, the, the question is probably getting a book for something about the rainbow, um, uh, which, which is, um, uh, documents uh, a lot of behavior in non-human animals, which could be called homosexual. Um, I think it's an interesting question. Um, you, you can make a Darwinian theory for, uh, 
why there might be a kind of minority uh, Darwinian benefit in homosexual behavior. Um, one theory is the sort of the worker bee theory um, that, um, uh, this is not my theory, but, I, I, but others have proposed it, that uh, homosexual individuals uh, could, could assist their genes by taking care of, say, nephews and nieces, that kind of thing. I mean, a, a version of that might be in our wild ancestors, uh, perhaps when um, dominant males were out hunting and women and children were staying behind uh, and, uh, in camp or, or in, the, in the village, say, um, the dominant males might have preferred to leave some males behind uh, to, uh, to guard the camp, to guard the women and children. Um, and um, th those males might have been related to the children that they're, that they're guarding, which would be a, a good kin selection um, explanation. Moreover, the dominant males might have um, uh, trusted homosexual males to be left behind with the women because they would assume that being, that being gay, they would not uh, mate with them. And um, if they were bisexual, um, and of course many, many people are, then that trust might be misplaced. And so this would provide a, uh, a, an alternative route for genes, for, for homosexual genes to pass down through the generations. They're not only looking after their own kin, their nephews and nieces, but maybe even mating um, while the dominant males are out of the, of the way. Um, as you know, uh, there are, there's quite a lot of evidence in non-human animals for um, what are called sneaky males um, who, who in, in, in harem societies where there's a dump, like say elephant seals, where there's a dominant bull who has a harem of females. And there are a lot of males who, who are hanging around rather disconsolately. And they will every now, every now and again attempt to mate with a female until they're chased off. But sometimes they succeed. And so there is a kind of minority of trickle of genes down this, down this un unorthodox route. And so maybe um, gay men or bisexual men um, uh, were um, uh, passing on some of their genes in that way. I'm not very keen on either of those theories, actually. I, I think I prefer something I suggested myself, which is that um, when we talk about a gene for something or other, in this case, talking about a gene for homosexual behavior, um, the, it doesn't actually mean anything except in a context. So it may be that there's no such thing as an absolute gene for homosexual behavior. There's only a gene for homosexual behavior in a certain context. An example, a hypothetical example that I've used is uh, bottle feeding versus breastfeeding. If, for example, um, there's a gene that makes bottle-fed males likely to become homosexual, before bottles were invented, that gene would not have expressed itself in that way. It might have expressed itself in some completely different way. We're thoroughly used to the idea that 
a gene for X is only a gene for X in the right conditions under the right circumstances. Now, of course, bottle feeding versus breastfeeding is just a, is just a hypothetical example of how that might have worked. But it's easy to think that of ways in which genes that had one effect in a primitive environment would have a very different effect in a civilized environment. And a gene that did something quite different in a primitive environment might have the effect of uh, of, of making them, of, of, of turning a, a man gay in a civilized environment. Um, a lot is known about the hormonal origins of homosexuality and, and um, that's a, a different kind of approach to the, to the question, which is not, not an evolutionary approach, not a Darwinian approach at least, um, but is also in, important to, to um, not, not to forget. That, that was a, a very interesting question and a, a, a great, absolutely great answer. Um, we have a question here, which I think is quite interesting. Um, besides religion, evolution and natural selection are very present in most of your books. Uh, and this person asks, have we translocated uh, from natural selection to artificial selection in the, in the sense that we are now selected based not on natural factors, but and anthropomorphic ones? Or are these anthropomorphic factors part of our extended phenotype and therefore of our nature? Uh, you, you're muted, uh, Dr. Dawkins. Um, I'm not quite sure what anthropomorphic factors means. Uh, I, I think it's in the context that, that you know, nowadays we want uh, for example, if, if, if a woman is, is uh, choosing a potential mate, uh, she's not going to pick based on how fit they are to survive uh, in, uh, 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 in the current natural uh, circumstances or, or environmental circumstances. Yes. And it will be more anthropomorphic in the sense that, you know, it's money, a career, uh, happiness and so on. Yes. Um, I'm always very reluctant to go too much into humans, especially modern humans, uh, in, in a Darwinian context. Um, it's so complicated and we are so, in a way, feather-bedded from our wild state. Um, so to the extent that we are undergoing genetic selection at the moment, there could be all sorts of complicated cultural factors going on, as you say. Um, but, I mean, something like women allegedly choosing rich or successful men, um, th that wouldn't possibly make sense in a society where um, rich and successful men have, have lots of wives. But in a monogamous society, that doesn't really happen. And so, um, although we might inherit from our wild ancestors a tendency, males might inherit a tendency to try to become rich and powerful because under those wild conditions that would have meant, that would have translated into having lots of wives. Um, it, it sort of no longer does. And so um, uh, it, it's not easy for me to answer questions like that. I, I think um, humans are so complicated and so separated from a wild state where natural selection of genes goes on in the ordinary way, um, that it's better to shy away from that kind of question, I think. 
Time for one more question, I think. Yeah, uh, I think we have normally a, a general free speech question, uh, which we like to ask. Um, Kat, will you ask it? Yeah, yeah. Um, da, 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 da. Just swapping over. So, um, as pretty much all of us here who are watching this um, know, you've obviously been um, put into a lot of controversies in the past because of the books that you've written, especially those that are looking into religion. Um, so, there must have been plenty of attempts to try and silence you by various religious communities. Um, how has this changed your view of free speech and has it, has it um, increased your appreciation for freedom of expression? I don't think I've, anybody's really made much of an attempt to silence me. I mean, they, they can, uh, can criticise what I've said. They're welcome to do that and I can reply. But I don't think that's... Uh, a case of silencing. I don't think I feel silenced by the religious community. I'm very happy to say, and I'm very, I feel we're very privileged to live in a country where we don't get silenced. And I feel very empathetic, sympathetic towards uh, our friends in Islamic theocracies where uh, they where people who think like I do and speak like I do and write like I do dare not do so uh, because for, for fear of reprisals, which can be very severe indeed. Uh, and I think that one of the um, things that I would like to see would be greater uh, freedom of speech in Islamic countries, Islamic theocracies like um, Iran, like Saudi Arabia, uh, and Pakistan, where you can literally be killed for your opinions, for your atheistic opinions, um, and um, either by a mob or even by the by the uh, elected by the official government. Um, so I think we probably should count ourselves in in our sort of country relatively lucky. And that is unfortunately all we have time for. Um, I'd just like to thank Richard Dawkins for being with us. It's been a great honor. I'm sure most biologists would give up their right arm to have the opportunity of talking, albeit virtually, to Richard Dawkins for almost an hour. So uh, thank you so much for accepting our invitation. It's been, it's been great. Um, we'd also like to thank everyone that came to this event um, and ask questions. It's great to see so many people interested in the society and our events. Uh, just to remind you that on Friday, we're going to have at 7 p.m. an event with Cosmic Skeptic from YouTube and next week on Tuesday with William Lane Craig. And we also have a fundraiser going because subsidizing a Zoom account is quite expensive, turns out. Um, and the information for that and our events is on our Facebook. Uh, and just to end, I'd like to, to finish with a quote, as I normally do. And this one is from Marie Curie, which is another one of my science heroes. And she said, a scientist in the laboratory is not a mere technician. They're also a child confronting natural phenomena that impress them as though they were fairy tales. Richard Dawkins has undoubtedly inspired an endless number of curious people to follow their passion and explore science with the wonder of a child. I'm certainly one of them. Thank you, Richard Dawkins, 
thank you everyone for watching. It's been an absolute pleasure. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. It's been fantastic.